Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm really excited today to have Bob Bowlesby with us. Bob is the uh, commissioner of the Big 12 Conference. Um, he started his athletic career uh, many years ago as a wrestler at uh, Moorhead State University in Minnesota, where, co- coincidentally, my mother also uh, went to school. He um, was athletic director at Northern Iowa University, then the University of Iowa, and then um, more, most recently Stanford University before uh, taking the helm of the Big 12 Conference. Uh, he is also a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee and uh, recently chaired the selection committee that appointed uh, the new CEO, Scott Blackman, uh, uh, as the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, Bob, it's really fantastic having you uh, here to talk with us today. Thank you, Jim. It's nice to be with you and uh, look forward to our conversation. So the first time I met you, uh, shortly after you, I have to say when um, when you were appointed uh, Positive Coaching Alliance was uh, very closely affiliated with the Stanford Athletic Department, <clears throat> and I happened to be traveling, and uh, when the no- news was broken that you were um, had been appointed the athletic director of Stanford, I was at a, uh, several different conferences, and people came up to me and said, oh, man, Stanford is so lucky you got the, the best athletic director in the country in Bob Bowlesby. Um, so I was very excited to, to talk to you the first time, and I, I was telling you about PCA, and I said, um, you know, we're focused on high school. We want to we want to transform high school and use sports. You know, we we don't think we could uh, you know fix professional or college sports. And um, you said to me, well, some of us haven't given up on that yet. <laughs> um, so talk to me about um, you know fixing may not the right word, but making. Uh, elite sports better. I mean, you're you know you're in the middle of uh, the you know big Division One uh, sports, and then you're also involved with the Olympic Committee. Uh, I'd love to just hear you talk about um, what can we expect and how can we make it better. Well, uh, you know, I I don't have any uh, secret potion or any any uh, magic uh, that would necessarily accomplish that but I from the first time that I heard about PCA uh, it struck me that uh, there were many elements of it that were applicable throughout sports and um, you know interestingly enough uh, you you have a a lot of people uh, that are competing at or have competed at the very highest levels that believe in what PCA is doing. And uh, Coach Jackson is certainly a, a great example of that. And, uh, and you know, he, he tried his, uh, his darndest to uh, be positive with his athletes, and I think he, uh, he got unprecedented results. Um, I, I think that um, it's embarrassing in the college environment, particularly where I've spent the last 35 years, to have – uh, head football coaches or basketball coaches or baseball coaches or women's basketball coaches um, saying things to young people that uh, a faculty member or an administrator at the university would probably be admonished for if they use similar language or similar tactics. 
And um, I, I think that's inappropriate in a higher education environment. And, and it's also emblematic of, of uh, the manner in which we've allowed uh, some of those things just to happen. Um, and I think uh, as they happen, it's become a harsher environment. Um, the, the public has been desensitized to some of the um, harsher elements of it. And, and I just think uh, a lot of the coaching behavior uh, could be uh, appropriately and effectively uh, improved uh, by the things that, that you're doing with Positive Coaching Alliance. And uh, I, I just don't believe that it's necessarily accurate that uh, um, you need to get excited and act like an idiot on, uh, on the sidelines in order to uh, uh, achieve high-quality performance from your team. I, I like your phrase, uh, the public has been desensitized to uh, the way some coaches, the sort of nasty, snarly style of coaching. Um, but you don't buy at all the idea that what coaches are trying to get athletes to do um, is different and fundamentally more uh, you know, visceral, emotional than what great teachers in the classroom are trying to do, and therefore it calls for more harsh methods. No, I, I don't buy that at all. I, I think uh, I think coaches, I think teachers, uh, I, I think mentors um, try and and take young people to places that they couldn't take themselves um, of their own volition, and um, that uh, probably does at times uh, require um, some uh, pushing and and. Uh, pressing of buttons, but that doesn't mean that it has to involve embarrassing behavior and profanity and, and tactics that uh, are uh, perhaps easier and more accessible, uh, but don't require the same level of thought. Um, I, just, I just don't think it's uh, satisfactory in any walk of life to uh, lose one's temper, especially when you're uh, working with uh, young people. I mean, our, our task at the collegiate level is uh, at its heart to help 18-year-old adolescents become 22-year-old adults. And um, many of them haven't learned the lessons um, that uh, they should be learning at the college level. And, uh, and that's why I think PCA is an important initiative because um, probably, uh, well, I know a very large percentage of the uh, our country's professional athletes come out of about 25 urban centers. And so as a result of that, uh, it tends to be a, uh, um, a situation where there isn't always a father in the home. Um, there isn't always uh, appropriate consideration given to uh, some of the uh, more thoughtful aspects of, of how you get from point A to point B. And they haven't always had the luxury of, of mentors and teachers that can make a difference in their lives. And uh, I really see, from a selfish standpoint, the uh, benefits of PCA uh, could have on, on college athletic environment because if these young people have been exposed to, to uh, high-quality coaches who uh, take a positive approach to uh, how they mentor and shape and, and instruct young people, um, that's going to have a highly positive effect when those young people get to the next level. 
Uh, you, you quoted a statistic there I'd never heard before. What percentage of professional athletes come out of 25 urban centers? I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, Jim, but it's, uh, it's a very high uh, number of uh, NBA and, and NFL draft picks come out of uh, about 25 major metropolitan areas, uh, yeah. 25, 25 counties. Yeah, wow. Um, one of the things that uh, Bill Walsh, and I know you knew Bill at, at Stanford, one of the things Bill Walsh said to me once about uh, hard conversations that, and I think you were saying about sometimes mentors, coaches um, need to, to push some buttons and push some, some um Athletes um, and and Bill used the term hard conversation. We've we've appropriated that term. It's like uh, positive works better. There's all kinds of research that shows that. And then once in a while, you have to have a hard conversation with a kid that can be done without embarrassment. Just like like uh, you said. Um, what what about your uh, life as an athlete? Uh, did you have a mentor, a coach who who really um, you know really helped you become who you are? Yes, I sure did, and um, and he uh, is a, um, a dear, dear friend to this day. Uh, his name is Bob Siddons. Uh, he was a, a very successful high school wrestling coach at Waterloo West High School. Uh, he he won his teams won 17 uh, high school uh, state championships in the in the big school class in Iowa. He coached Dan Gable. Uh, he coached many NCAA champions, and uh, I, I never heard him utter a word of profanity in, in the 60 years I've known him. And um, he is a, a, a positive role model in every way. Uh, he, is a, he is very soft-spoken, but as tough as they come. And uh, he was a, uh, a, he's always been an example for me and a real beacon that you can be a gentleman and you can be tough as nails all at the same time. Um, and in fact, uh, having having worked with Coach Walsh for a year uh, while I was at Stanford, it's it's one of the great blessings of my life. Um, but uh, a, a lot of the things that I saw Coach Siddons do were things that that Bill Walsh uh, really believed in and embraced as well. And um, they uh, uh, being soft spoken and articulate and thoughtful and insightful uh, doesn't equate to being soft. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really lovely. Um, th let's talk about being a wrestler. I, I, I think I shared this story with you once where I, my um, ninth grade, um, actually seventh grade, uh, seventh grade uh, geography teacher was, uh, was the high school wrestling coach, and he was also a state representative and just uh, a man of the world. I grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and uh, just uh, David Monplaisier was his name, and I really admired him, and, and he recruited me as a seventh grader to come out for the high school wrestling team, and, and I, um, you know, I was playing on the seventh, eighth grade basketball team, and then playing, uh, you know, then going to after going to wrestling practice, and my mom, I started to get run down, and my mom took me to the doctor, and she said, uh, the doctor found out I was I was doing two sports at once, you know, four hours of practice a day, and she and the doctor said, you got to choose between the two, and I was so relieved because I didn't want to let Mr. Monplaisier down, but I really hated wrestling. <laughs> I mean, um, tell me about being a wrestler. It just seems like it's such a hard sport. 
Well, it is a hard sport, um, and yet I uh, I did it, and I reaped the benefits all my life from it. Uh, especially in my line of work, there are there are lots of lonely times when you you ponder your decisions, and and uh, whatever you decide, you're going to have to live with it, and you're going to have to be self-reliant. And there's there's nothing lonelier than being out on a on a wrestling mat by yourself when. Uh, um, you know that if you don't do it, nobody's going to do it for you. And um, those are those are great life lessons. And uh, I uh, I learned that uh, I, I similarly was recruited uh, to come out for wrestling. My dad was a two-time All-State basketball player and a two-time All-State football player, and I had always come up wanting to be a basketball player. And then I I realized that uh, the uh, the sport of wrestling in my hometown was uh, was a big deal, and so I was invited to come out to the wrestling team and try it out by a guy just like you. Uh, his name was Marty Lundvall. Uh, he was a science teacher at West Junior High School, and I came out and found out that I uh, I was okay at it and I liked it and uh, I got better at it. And uh, it was at a time when uh, I was I was relatively small, and uh, so. It was uh, it was a perfect fit for me, and and as it turned out, my brother followed in my footsteps, and and both of us had uh, uh, not only junior high but high school and collegiate and even post collegiate careers, and so I, I really consider my involvement in wrestling to have been a a tremendous benefit and blessing to me. But more than that, I really feel like I had the blessing of mentors like Marty Lundvall and uh, and Bob Siddons uh, that, that really have made a lifetime difference for me. Um, do you feel like, in general, wrestlers are scrappier than other athletes? <laughs> well, I can tell you this, that I every once in a while I would have some uh, football or basketball player pop off to me, and I'd uh, invite him to come into the wrestling room, and they usually didn't want any more of it after a very short <laughs> Hi. <laughs> That's great. You know, I was thinking about what you said about um, uh, Coach Siddons and, and, and Bill Walsh. Um, one of the things, there, there's certain things that fantastic coaches like, like Bill Walsh um, that's, you know, maybe you can't teach that, but there's a lot of stuff that they do that can be taught and can be learned. And that's one of the, things I, one of the ways I think about Positive Coaching Alliances. Can we learn what Phil Jackson and Bill Walsh and, and uh, you know, Bob Siddons, how they coach? And can we teach other coaches that so they can become like them? And uh, I would say that um, our goal is that uh, people like Bob Siddons don't stand out, that there's so many coaches <clears throat> that are coaching in that phenomenal way. Um, that uh, you know, many, many, many more kids get that kind of a coach. Well, it's um, I, I don't know that you're going to always develop uh, people that uh, assess talent and uh, and know just exactly uh, what to do at what time and uh, who to insert in a lineup or or what play to call at a particular time. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's always that merger um, of of ability and insight and good fortune and uh, hard work that intersect to to yield uh, the right outcome. But I do think much can be learned from the style in which they did it, the manner in which they go about it, 
the um, um, the insight and the the techniques that they use uh, on a personal level from a mentorship standpoint. You know, there are there are lots of coaches that are having profound impacts on the young people that they work with um, on losing teams, and uh, they they aren't. It isn't always about championship teams and and. Coach Walsh, Coach Jackson, Coach Siddons, they all had championship teams. They're all tremendous coaches in their own right. Um, but they didn't get ju- they didn't get to be great coaches just by virtue of their style. They got there by virtue of uh, um, the convergence of all those things that I mentioned. And I think there's much to be learned from them, even if you don't have the coaching uh, success that they have. Uh, it is, it is, they would have all been the same people. Uh, had they had average or poor teams than than they were as champion coaches, they just had a bigger platform as a result of being champions. I remember once uh, one of um, um, John Wooden's uh, athletes, uh, one of his players, was quoted in, in the press as saying, "You know, you guys, um, the, the only the, the only reason it was important for John Wooden to win is because you so you guys would pay attention to him." <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in that, Jim. I really do. The um, you once said to me that um, you felt that there are some really great examples. You know, when I first started Positive Coaching Alliance, it's like there's the professional sports entertainment business culture, win at all costs, and then <clears throat> we're trying to create this uh, we call a development zone culture, where the goal is to develop better athletes, better people in high school and youth sports. Um, and at a certain point, I realized there's a lot of what we call double goal coaches, winning, yes, but, uh, you know, better athletes, but also better people. And you once said to me you felt there were some really good examples of double goal coaches who were developing people as well as athletes in the Big 12 Conference. You want to you say anything about that or maybe mention one or two of them? Well, I think we really have some terrific coaches, um, and and our we're we're in basketball season right now, and so it's the front of mind. But um, I, I think that uh, you know we have we have six coaches in our league that have uh, taken teams to the Final Four, and um, and had uh, you know the opportunity to be on the biggest stage and. I think in a sport like men's basketball where all the best parts of college basketball and all the worst parts of college basketball are present right there in in that one sport uh, you know it's uh, and it it reaches beyond just basketball it's uh, it's a really highly volatile area where kids are passed along and patted on the butt and told how wonderful they are uh, throughout uh, their their uh, adolescent years, and by the time they get to college, they're in large measure um, professionalized. And um, and I, I think uh, there still is an opportunity, just as you and I discussed previously, uh, at the college level to uh, say to young people, um, this this is about trying to be as good as you can on the basketball floor or the football field, uh, but it's also about trying to trying to um, learn some things about yourself and learn some things about the world uh, by the time you get to be 22. And, and that, that's why I think so much is lost when, when we have these one-and-done kids or, or they leave early without their degree because there's a lot more to college than just a springboard to the professional ranks. And I've never thought that the college 
and university operations and athletics were, were there to produce professional athletes or to produce Olympic gold medalists. I think those things are highly desirable byproducts of, of a quality uh, collegiate athletic experience. And, and I, I, quite frankly, I don't think there's anybody that does it better than Stanford University. And I, I wouldn't trade my six years there for anything. But what I found in the Big 12 is that we really have some some wonderful coaches in in a lot of our sports and um, and you know guys like Bill Self um, he is uh, Bill is a is a wonderful guy um, he he can be hard on kids at times and and I, there are times I wish he was a a more positive coach but uh, lost in all the shuffle is he has an academic progress rate at the University of Kansas that is one thousand. Uh, that is to say, he hasn't ever had anybody leave the program that wasn't in good academic standing. And what that takes is a lot of quality mentorship from a head coach, because that's where that marching order comes from. Um, similarly, Lon Kruger at Oklahoma is a is an absolutely terrific person, um, even right alongside of the fact that he's a, a, a great coach. Um, Bruce Rebwer is a is a terrific person and. Uh, has uh, has done extraordinary things as a coach, but he's he's also done extraordinary things to help young people that don't have any chance of going on to the NBA become outstanding young men. Uh, Rick Barnes at Texas is is absolutely terrific in that way. Uh, he's he's engaged in ministries overseas. He's got a son that's doing missionary work right now. Uh, Rick's life is so full of things other than basketball that it, it makes me so excited to see his team having so much success this year because I know he he does it the right way and and he does it in ways that uh, that really help young people um, get to where they get to where they need to go. So I, I feel very fortunate um, in in all our sports. We really have a lot of good role models. Having said that, we also have some very bad role models. Um, we have some people that I've had to deal with uh, on on deportment matters and and on um, harassment of officials and public comments about officials and and uh, um, unsportslike conduct acts of one sort or another. And um, it's a it's a way that I feel like I can have an impact on um, uh, trying to help push people towards double goal thinking because it's, uh, um, you know, I, I, can, I can have some control over sideline behavior and, and uh, on-court behavior and, and uh, treatment of umpires and, and treatment of young people. And so um, I, I hope that I, I never get to the point where I don't view myself as an educator and as a person that can uh, have some impact on on those uh, that are sort of within the sphere of influence you know one of the uh, you know it's kind of a common uh, common wisdom i think um, conventional wisdom i should say that you know when big money comes into any situation then there's big problems and you know there's big money in in uh, division one football and men's basketball and to a lesser extent but significant women's basketball as well um, how does one keep one's <clears throat> balance, if I can say it that way, when you're in a, a situation where um, it is succeed, uh, you know, win or lose your job ultimately? 
uh, how how do the people who are able to do that? How do they do? It? What's how are they able to keep their balance when there's there seems to be so much at stake? Well, I think you have to live your life above the fray, and um, yeah, that's easier said than done. Um, I, I think anybody who's been through hard times uh, knows how lonely that can be and and how difficult it can be. Uh, but in the end, uh, I think we're all happier when we uh, we get past a period of trauma and uh, can look back and say that we've we've stuck to our principles. And um, you know, I, I just uh, as I say, that's it's always easier said than done. Um, we all, we all adopt a survival mentality. I think when you know when things aren't going the way we'd like them to. But um, you know, it's easy to say late in my career. But I, I, as I look back, I, I hope that I've, I've stuck to it uh, over the years. And and that is, you know, I'd, I'd rather walk away with my, with my values and my principles intact than I, than I would keep a job that I had to compromise to, to um, be able to keep. And. I don't. I don't think of myself as being rigid. I just think uh, that that you ha- you have to you have to stand for something. And um, you know the, the uh, I, I think uh, coaches have changed some at the highest levels. I watched an interview with with uh, Jim Beheim and and Mike Shishetsky, uh, and uh, you know both of those guys are people that got into coaching as teachers and and uh, um, neither of them really ever expected to have 900 or more wins um, but you look at a lot of the the young people that are coming through the coaching ranks now uh, they're in it for a different motivation they're uh, the big money has uh, was in place long before they got started in their profession and and so they you know they didn't start out as as old PE teachers and and high school coaches, they started out as people that wanted to work their way through uh, the professional ranks or the or the um, or the college ranks, uh, and they they knew that there was a big payday there if they just stick to it. Um, so I I, uh, I think it uh, punctuates the importance of, of what you're doing, Jim, to make sure that we get people started coming through the system. That uh, uh, have aspirations to to coach and and that have aspirations to coach and do it the right way. You know your your phrase about live, you know, trying to live life above the fray. <clears throat> um, when I was a kid, I was a uh, uh, partly because of Roger Maris coming out of North Dakota like me and being with the Yankees. But I was a, just a you know, fanatical Yankees fan and. And Bob Lemon was a really, really good pitcher for the Yankees, and then he became the manager later on. <clears throat> and at a certain point, he was, um, I think George Steinbrenner fired him and brought Billy Martin in. And, and um, uh, a reporter asked Bob Lemon, um, you know, you know, how does it feel to, you know, be fired? And and he said, um, you know, um, it would have bothered me before, but last year my son died. And I realize this just isn't all that important. And I feel like sometimes we, part of being living above the fray is just having the perspective of 
<clears throat> what's really important. We, we try to teach kids, um, you know, if you're going into a big contest and there's a lot of a lot of pressure, to say to yourself, um, is if I fail, can I survive and thrive? And the answer is almost always yes. Okay, well then go out and go out and do as do everything you can to win. Be you know as enthusiastic as you can, and just recognize that if you if you lose, you're not going to die. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and uh, survive and thrive uh, sometimes is contingent upon having uh, left it all out there, uh, giving everything you can and having done it the right way. And um, you know, I, I think that's that's part of having your your uh, self-concept where it should be and, and also having your principles and priorities where they should be. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, um, I don't know if super conferences are the right way, uh, right term, but the Big 12 and SEC and uh, Pac-12, et cetera. Um, the, there's, there's kind of a division within the NCAA with these conferences, uh, big-time conferences and the smaller conferences. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the conflict there and what you think needs to happen to, to um, you know, make things better? Well, it's, um, there's no short answer to that. Um, the, uh, the NCAA in, in Division One is 350 and some odd schools. Uh, some of them have $2 million budgets. Some of them have $160 million budgets. And we, uh, in large measure, try and paint them all with the same brush from a, from a legislative and rules standpoint. And the NCAA process that we've all helped to put in place has largely been uh, one of trying to uh, legislate competitive equity. Um, and by doing that, you you limit the prerogatives of the larger schools and, and advance the prerogatives of the middle and lower schools. And, and uh, you know, it's created uh, some, some terrific opportunities for young people. Uh, what we've found, however, is that the, the 65 schools that comprise uh, the, the five major conferences are encountering challenges and difficulties about which we have have found ourselves to be incapable of responding. And so um, we've, we've sought to move things uh, through the legislative processes that, that would be responsive to the, the issues within our programs and, uh, and, all, and found that they were uh, typically voted down or overridden by um, people that can't afford to do what we were proposing or, or uh, for one reason or another, felt like it was competitively inappropriate for their institutions. And so uh, there has been a lot of talk about how do we go about getting the autonomy that's required to uh, respond to such things as uh, agent issues, uh, respond to the hue and cry for unionization, uh, to deal with uh, some, of the, some of the other challenges that are embodied in um, major college athletics that, that are not found in, um, in all of these other uh, programs. And, and what the, the majority of the 350 schools want to retain is they, they want to maintain access to championships. They want to retain the revenue from the men's basketball championship. 
and they want to be able to call themselves Division One from a branding standpoint. Um, the five major conferences, on the other hand, uh, really want to be able to have autonomy over the over the things that we need, so that if the five of us, uh, the five conferences, are fairly unanimous on a on a belief that we ought to change a rule, that we can get an intact piece of legislation through the system um, and and expect it to be responsive to our needs. What happens instead right now is um, someone proposes a piece of legislation that's intended to look like a thoroughbred racehorse, and by the time it gets modified and massaged and, and uh, legislatively altered, uh, we end up passing something that looks more like a three-legged camel than a than a thoroughbred racehorse, and so uh, it's 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 our hope that we can we can move uh, uh, through this process and and uh, keep those principles and that priorities that the that the uh, smaller institutions and conferences have and and meet the needs of our. Um, our major college programs, and you know the uh, the 65 uh, member institutions of the five major conferences win more than 92 percent of the of the national championships, and uh, and we also probably bring 98 percent of the of the um, uh, the equity and and the financial resource to the table. So you know it's uh, it's really about being able to. Uh, be the the masters of our own fate, and uh, we don't feel like we've been able to do that uh, as efficiently and effectively as we would have liked. So, uh, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, come up with a a process that will allow that to happen. It seems like there's been a, a demise of Division Two, and you know, Division Three seems pretty stable. But a lot of Division II schools seems like they've wanted, they've moved up. You mentioned for branding purposes, Division One. Um, don't we need a strong, thriving Division Two? I believe we do, and I, I think it's a a very viable option for for many institutions that are currently Division One. Um, now, but you know the the uh, the Division One uh, moniker. And identification has been a huge source of branding and marketing for a lot of institutions. They, um, uh, institutional social climbing is alive and well, and athletics is one of the ways that uh, um, institutions assert themselves as a so-called major uh, university. Um, you, you've been an athletic director uh, longer than you've been a commissioner. Um, Talk about what I mean. I think a lot of people who don't really understand what an athletic director do might think, "Wow, that's the greatest job in the world." Um, what's a, what's life as an athletic director like? Well, some days it is the greatest job in the world, um, but uh, other days it's not. And I have characterized the life of a, a major college athletic director as being um, in a small boat in choppy seas. <laughs> and uh, you really have to get accustomed to that because, um, you know, there, there are probably 25 stakeholder groups that all believe they have a uh, have or should have a say in, in how intercollegiate athletics runs on your campus. Uh, there are, and what is a, a great decision for one constituent group may be a very bad decision for another constituent group. So you're, you're going to... Uh, naturally have lots of uh, 
lots of crossfires. And um, so, you know, I, I did it for almost 35 years, and uh, um, I guess I can call myself a survivor at this point. But um, the the jobs are are not for the faint of heart. They are they are 70 to 80 hours a week, and uh, you put your head down and late August and you don't pull it up again until the middle of June and uh, there's always a uh, there's always a recruiting breakfast or a volleyball match or a track meet or a uh, um, fundraising event of some sort and it's a it's a fun but very very active and um, energetic environment and uh, but uh, the the best thing about it is you you develop a lot of relationships and and if somebody asked me what I miss about uh, being on campus, it would it would clearly be relationships with student athletes and the the strong relationships you get with coaches uh, for you know through the high highs and the low lows that you get uh, of competition. And so um, you know I I like what I'm doing and I still feel like I can have an impact, but um, I have to admit to to missing the relationships and the buzz that takes place on campus. You mentioned uh, you're going to be uh, going to Russia for the Winter Olympics. Um, the And then, you know, recently uh, Jason Collins, who played at Stanford, uh, came out as, the, as one of the very first um, uh, openly gay professional players. Um, how, how do you see the... the um, the, the the issue with uh, gay athletes in Sochi uh, playing out. Well, it's a it's a great question, Jim, and and um, we have um, instructed our athletes to be um, good guests, and um, we have also uh, assured uh, all of our athletes that that they will be protected and uh, will be um, put in position to uh, compete at the highest level and, and to not have distractions from, from their preparation for the games. And um, the uh, Russian government has assured us that uh, our coaches and, and athletes and fans uh, will be uh, appropriately uh, protected and that um, you know they they won't uh, there won't be any issues. Uh, the uh, the law that is in place in the Soviet Union or in in Russia is um, is certainly not one that we would embrace in this country. Uh, but we have to we have to be uh, mindful of uh, the differences in in beliefs uh, from country to country and and in the country we are visiting. Uh, they have taken a, a very harsh approach to this, and so um, I, I don't know that uh, we we won't have um, demonstrations on the medal stand or um, issues that uh, may uh, come up as a result of of um, a visible uh, representations of of, um, of lifestyle issues, but. Um, we, we've tried to work uh, with staff and work through each of the national governing bodies to uh, sensitize uh, our athletes to the fact that uh, while in Russia, uh, we we are not uh, we don't enjoy the same liberties that that uh, we do here in this country, and uh, 
um, while they're going to be protected, um, they they also have to be mindful of the of the uh, things that are in play in the in the host and in, in, in the host country. So it's a, it's obviously a very complex environment. It's one that that uh, um, we certainly uh, can't condone. But I think the worst thing we could do is is boycott the games or uh, in any way um, create a um, a situation where the athletes don't have optimal um, uh, preparation and and competitive opportunities. You know, you you mentioned uh, some of you know the highlights, the highs and lows of the highs of being an athletic director and and the relationships with uh, student athletes. Uh, one of the great things about sports is you just never know what's going to happen, and sometimes things break through that are amazing. And I, I felt that way about Jason Collins. I, I actually met Jason. Uh, you know, he would never remember me, but I met him and uh, really uh, admired him as an athlete and a, as a person. He and his, his twin brother. Um, and then to have him uh, take that strong, courageous stand, just uh, it's just uh, it's really really wonderful, really exciting. Well, it's a uh... Um, it's also very Stanford-like, and uh, you know I, I think that uh, that university teaches young people to be independent, to think for themselves, to um, view the world's challenges and problems and issues uh, from a different lens. And um, I, I'm not surprised that uh, it was a, a Stanford student athlete that. Uh, that uh, came out as Jason did. I I don't know him. I've I've met his parents, and um, uh, but I don't know either Jason or Jaron. And and uh, it's uh, there there have been some uh, bumpy moments for him, but I I certainly admire uh, what he's done. And and um, there were uh, I I always admire people who um, could have taken easier paths but didn't. And um, it's uh, it's a real milestone. Well, Bob, um, this has been fantastic. I, I want to thank you for um, for your your strong support of Positive Coaching Alliance for for many years now, and um, I think uh, both of us should uh, uh, continue to work really hard to transform uh, uh, sports at all levels to uh, make it the very best experience it can be for for uh, young people. And uh, I'm I'm really proud to have you as a supporter of Positive Coaching Alliance. Well, uh, thanks very much, Jim, and, and congratulations to you, and thanks for the leadership you've provided. Uh, you know, somebody somebody needed to jump in and get this started, and uh, you've done an, a, an amazing job, and it's uh, always surprising to me whenever I hear of the the, um, the new areas in which you've uh, you've already begun and made an impact. So um, you're you're making a difference, and, and I congratulate you for that. Bob, thank you so much. Take care now. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.